today on Ag News Daily. There's been billions of dollars that have been invested in agriculture technology over the last few decades, and nearly all of it was focused on everything happening above ground. And almost no investment had gone into what is literally the other half of the equation, everything that's happening in the soil. Here we are, Tuesday, January 23rd. What, what, I did call these, what, terrible Tuesdays? There's just not a lot of headlines. <laughs> I don't know. I have more. Tuesdays. I have more headlines. I feel like than I usually do on the on a Tuesday. Uh-huh. We just record so late in the afternoon afternoon on Mondays. Uh, yeah. These early morning Tuesday interviews and podcast recordings sometimes sneak up on those news reporters. But we've got enough for you guys today. Again, January twenty third, two thousand twenty four, hanging out together today, sitting in the studio. What's your first impression of where we're recording at? It's nice. I like this table. Uh huh custom table we'll have to throw we'll have to get you to snap a picture before you leave so you can okay. throw it up on the ag news daily platform yeah but we do have listeners that uh, are probably looking for some else, something to do today being stuck at home due to that freezing rain and light glaze of ice we've got freezing fog in parts of southwestern nebraska and northwestern kansas east central colorado that freezing fog could be in effect until tomorrow morning we have occasional freezing drizzle that will also be possible for other parts of the Midwest. In Oklahoma and Texas, panhandles, fog will be an issue. Only about 50% of that area will freeze, creating slick roadways. The fog will also make driving dangerous. In eastern Iowa, northern Illinois, we've got mixed precipitation. Sitting here at the studio, Delaney, we don't have a lot of precipitation, but I would say the fog has made the sidewalks a little glazed, um, get some ice melt out there. But we'll see the extreme cold break over much of the country this week. The January thaw could last into the first weeks of February. Those locations that were buried with heavy snow recently could see more rain on top of that. And we'll see again what this thaw does to river levels and flooding concerns. Those are your weather updates. Yeah, it was definitely a little misting as I was driving over here to the studio this morning, but nothing freezing as of yet. I was waiting for that. Yeah, glad that you got here and we uh, didn't have to postpone your, your first visit. That's true. Absolutely. We get to record in the studio today, live and in person. So uh, Tanner, continuing on to my first headline here, got a lot of actual news today in the headlines, but recently here within the last few days and last few weeks, JBS has proposed to be part of the New York Stock Exchange as the world's largest meat packing company. Uh, a lot of lawmakers are cautious about allowing JBS to be part of the New York Stock Exchange. In recent weeks, lawmakers in the United States and the United Kingdom both have sent letters to the Securities and Exchange Commission cautioning against the listing of JBS why you might be thinking, well, I don't think that comes as any surprise as JBS has uh, lots of tumultuous, to use your word, history when it comes to their economics and finances. But JBS said that trading on the world's largest stock exchange would give them access to more capital and enhance their credibility. Lawmakers are concerned for a few reasons. One, because of the extreme corruption we've seen coming out of JBS in recent years. But the second one might not be a reason that our listeners may be thinking about. Environmental groups are arguing that the expanded capital would allow JBS 
more ability to continue with deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. As we know that in Brazil, they have different policies when it comes to environmental practices and protections. And they said that the tie that JBS has with deforestation is pretty great. And for that reason alone, they should not allow JBS to be on the New York Stock Exchange in of course, addition to the litany of other financial issues that they've had in recent years. Yeah, that, uh, again, when you are a worldwide company, you get to fit into a box that not everybody gets to play in. So yes. interesting to follow that there. We've got a combination in this headline of some ag buzzwords. We've got bio and carbon thrown into the same conversation here. Seed flowability agent that might be able to help both of those categories a network of independent dealers have created Loam Bio, which is bringing a new flowability agent to the carbon market and provide an opportunity to farmers. This is a two-in-one offer. They replace your standard seed flowability agent, which is usually graphite or some other type of material, with Loam's Bio Carbon Builder. This is automatically gets you enrolled into a new carbon program, and they call that program Second Crop. This company was started in Australia, with, company, with crops such as barley and canola, and it'll now be over soybean acres in six states, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Iowa. Loan Bio says that it's the first of their kind product and requires no change to the practice of what the farmers are doing. Simply just have to change your flowability agent. One of their founders is an agronomist who has a passion for soil health said they discovered the organisms in this flowability agent allowed the soil to capture more carbon in the long term. These proven results allows you to be directly enrolled into their carbon program. Loam Bio puts those microbes that are symbiotic with plant growth and soil fertility. There are no yield gain claims. Can you believe that, Delaney? I think no. this is one of the first products that doesn't say, we'll get you two more bushel or one more bushel per acre. I'd be curious to know what their marketing angle is. Simply the carbon program. Okay. So you get that free enrollment into their carbon program. The research doesn't show any yield drags either. It is a neutral play for this product, but you get that bonus carbon incentive. So quite interesting there coming from Lone Bio. Well, Tanner, one thing coming out of the Government Accountability Office is their recent audit into foreign farmland investments and purchases. Here's an interesting statistic for you on today's Tuesday podcast. Since 2016, foreign-owned farmland has increased by 40% here in the United States. Don't know if that shocks anyone. I thought that was a number. It was bigger than what I had anticipated. Well, I always love percentages because small numbers can grow by a large percentage and still True. be small numbers. Uh, but it is definitely eye-catching. True. It is eye-catching. And I'm sure that's part of the reason it was dumped into the story. But nonetheless, the GAO's recent audit reported that a lot of foreign companies aren't doing their due diligence to require to disclose land purchases and leases to the USDA. As part of the Agriculture Foreign Investment Disclosure Act of 1978, all foreign investments, companies, and private entities are required to disclose land purchases and leases to the USDA. However, according to the GAO's recent audit, a lot of companies are not doing that. And if they are, they're not providing very up-to-date information. They said in their report that it really needs to be done more than once a year. And the information that is needed 
is not being very up to date. And it doesn't seem that foreign owners are being forthcoming with the information needed. As we know, several states have tried to impose laws banning foreign ownership of land, and some members of Congress have proposed specific bans on companies with ties to China, North Korea, Russia, and Iran. However, due to this GAO audit, which was more than 62 pages in length, they said there are six specific recommendations that they'd like to see happen here moving forward. The first is for the Secretary of Agriculture to establish a process to provide timely AFIDA transaction data to the USDA. Clear and specific instructions should be given to the USDA staff and county employees. The Secretary of Agriculture should also oversee an analysis of whether the USDA can satisfy the requirements of developing an online submission system. The USDA should improve its verification and monitoring of this type of data collection. They should also continue to data mine to make sure that these records aren't falsified and do include all of the identity suspected filters needed. And they should direct the chief operating officer of the Farm Production and Conservation Business Center to ensure that these reporting documents are complete and provide the full information required by the act of 1978 tanner so it seems like we're getting a lot more focus on foreign farmland investment here in recent years and this is just the latest headline here and again that statistic was uh, certainly inserted and it'll be one for us to monitor kansas is monitoring avian influenza the kansas agricultural secretary mike beam stated that they have their 15th case of the davian the deadly avian influenza, the davian influenza there. Good, good. Uh, this was limited to an egg laying facility in McPherson and Rice County. They also found some game bird facility, uh, outbreak in a game bird facility in Mitchell County. The Kansas Department of Agriculture confirmed this. They have more than 450 commercial flocks uh, that have been affected across the country since 2022, but this is that 15th case in Kansas, we look at the United States Agricultural Secretary, Tom Vilsack. He dropped in at that Farm Bureau meeting we reported on yesterday in Salt Lake City and said that one of his greatest goals for this year is preserving the right to farm. And he takes that responsibility very sacred. He noticed in his presentation since 1981, the nation's lost more than 437,000 farms. That number is equivalent to the farmers that are farming today in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, Colorado, and the Dakotas. So if we go another 30 years or 40 years on this pace, we might not have any farmers left in the Midwest. So he's stating here that we cannot continue to lose small and mid-sized farms. He ended his presentation saying that the USDA will announce uh, further investments into clean energy. They will look at providing, again, connectivity throughout rural areas, as well as working through the rural energy program in 42 states. So he just dropped by that meeting, wanted to share a couple of those quick headlines. Well, one thing that could impact our ability to continue keeping family farms intact is uh, the death tax. We got some recent headway on or recent movement on that, I should say, as House Republicans reintroduced legislation this week to permanently repeal the death tax or the federal estate tax. 
It was introduced by Representative Randy Feenstra of Iowa with support from 162 lawmakers. The Death Tax Repeal Act would follow past Republican proposals to abolish estate taxes and include a Senate bill from early 2023. He said, as we look at families who spend generations building up a successful farm, ranch, or small business, they should be rewarded, not punished by our tax code. However, as we look at the path ahead to get this passed, there is not a lot of bipartisan support right now for repealing the estate tax, and it's unlikely to be enacted via the current split Congress, according to political experts. It seems like messaging is largely at play here while they're trying to keep these ideas in the forefront. It's a reminder that as we approach the 2025 discussion, uh, this is going to be a tough road to hoe to get the death tax officially abolished for family farms. But I know that would be a huge uh, sigh of relief for a lot of family farms. Yeah, absolutely. That certainly will go a long way. As Machinery Pete went a long ways for one of his stories. He came across a 2009 John Deere 9570 STS combine, Delaney. This combine was unique because it had zero separator hours. The combine had never ran in the field or threshed any crop. And the Facebook post where this was listed for sale had it listed for $249,900. So a combine that is nearly 30 years old, has no operating hours, and after his conversation with the seller, Delaney, the seller had at least two full offers during the conversation that Machinery Pete had. But I want to wrap up with my Israel-Gaza region news. 24 Israeli soldiers were killed in combat in southern Gaza on Monday. This is the biggest single loss of life for Israeli troops during the war with Hamas. Hundreds have been displaced and are trying to leave. Reports state that there is panic amid ongoing Israeli bombardment as forces are surrounding the southern city of Kahan Yunis. Israel's proposed allowing Hamas senior leaders to leave Gaza as part of the broader ceasefire deal. However, at this point, there is nothing considered. There has been an offered two-month truce as part of a prospective large hostage exchange. The U.S. and the U.K. carried out more strikes against the Houthi targets in Yemen. On Monday, the Houthi spokesperson said the strikes will not go unanswered. So we'll see what retaliation comes from there. But that wraps up my headlines for today. I think I am fairly well out of headlines here this morning as well, Tanner. Nothing major that I think we need to get into today's podcast. So I'll save a few headlines for our listeners for tomorrow. But as we take a look here at the opening markets, we are recording just after the open here this morning. And the overnights, we saw some positive trade. As we take a look here at the first moments of opening session, Taking a look here at the March corn contract, it's opening right at 447 and a half. It was up about a penny and three quarters in the overnight. March soybeans up eight and a half cents in the overnight to open at 1232 and three quarters. March hard red winter wheat up five and a quarter cent in the overnight at 612 and a quarter. March spring wheat added three cents in the overnight to open at 703 and a half. And as we take a look at livestock here at the open, February live cattle are up about 17 and a half cents at a buck 73.90. March feeder cattle up 20 cents at 231. And February lean hogs about 52 cents higher on the board here at the open at 71.45. Tanner, for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, we're chatting today with Lars 
DeRude to talk about earth optics and some of their recent focuses on soil mapping. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, folks, for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, we are chatting today with Lars Deerud, who is the CEO of Earth Optics. Lars, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, Lars, Earth Optics has been in the news quite a bit over the last few months as you guys have been working on some big initiatives. And we'll dig into those here in just a little bit. But before we do, give us the 10,000 foot view of who Earth Optics is and what you guys are focused on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Earth Optics is a soil mapping company with an emphasis on, on the mapping part. Uh, so we, we measure a broad range of soil attributes uh, important for farmers, uh, anywhere from traditional fertility measurements, but we also have soil compaction mapping too, uh, together with soil carbon mapping and quantification. And we're we're probably the doing 60 to 70% of all the soil carbon quantification happening in the United States right now. Um, and one of the reasons why we've been growing so quickly on all those soil attributes is, is in we've developed machine learning technology that allows us to take far fewer soil samples because we combine the data from those soil samples together with vehicle-based sensors and satellite data to make really high resolution, uh, accurate soil attribute maps. And usually at about half the cost of soil sampling alone, and usually a lot higher accuracy and resolution. Wow. That is, I could see why your play in the carbon world is certainly a big one, but tell our listeners how you got into the role that you have with Earth Optics. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a long story. I'll, keep, I'll do the short version. Um, but Earth Optics was founded at an egg tech accelerator in, in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, about a little over five years ago. Uh, and the gentleman, John Nebraska, who had started the accelerator was a friend of mine, and he had, he had helped me out with my last company. So he gave me a call and said, hey, we're thinking about starting this company that does machine learning and soil measurement using sensors. Uh, you want to come be an advisor? I was like, yeah, abso- absolutely. And then about a month later, he's like, actually, the reason why I wanted to get you interested, I want to see if you'd, you'd be CEO of this company. And so fast forward to today, and we've been, uh, I've been first helping out and then then running the company for nearly five years now. Well, that's exciting and a great story, I'm sure, to get to share with others about your role and journey that Earth Optics has had. But digging into the soil mapping, why focus on soil mapping? And, you know, what kind of is your end goal here for all of these maps that you've pulled together? Because I was reading a recent story that said you soil mapped in 45 states, four continents, you know, the list goes on and on. But why? It's a great question. I mean, when we got into this, we were looking around and saying, you know, there's been billions of dollars that have been invested in agriculture technology over the last few decades. And nearly all of it was focused on everything happening above ground from drone and satellite imagery of, of crop health and progress to 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 various uh, various models for being able to predict uh, pressures and hybrid things like that. And almost no investment had gone into what is literally the other half of the equation, everything that's happening in the soil. And so soil had kind of been, it was kind of measured about the same way that it has been for like the last 70 or 80 years, which is, if you want to know something about the soil, you send somebody out and they take some soil samples and they send it to a laboratory. And then some days, weeks, and sometimes months later, you now know a lot about one very specific area of that field. And when we talk to farmers, agronomists, and then people running sustainability programs like Carbon, uh, we really got a common answer back from all of them that they they got the level of soil data they can afford, not the level of soil data you want. And so 
we thought about like, hey, soil sampling is what we do because that's what we can do. What we really want to know is what is what are the soil properties everywhere across the field because that's where we're planting everywhere across the field. Um, and so we, you know, we worked on methodologies to really drive down the cost of producing those maps, yet have have our measurement on every other field be be accurate. And that that drove us into trying to identify sensors that we could mount to ATVs while our our techs were soil sampling. And those same sensors we wanted to ultimately put on tractors. So our our view was. A lot of people were trying to do things like this with satellite imagery and I actually worked in the, the satellite space for, for most of my career, for about 15 years. And we realized, you know, satellites just don't do a very good job of, of seeing underground. Uh, and so they weren't measuring accurately enough uh, the kind of things that people are interested, in, whether it's nutrients or carbon. Um, and so, but we did look at, there were sensors that we could use that actually, even though they don't touch the ground, they're interrogating the ground, like electromagnetic induction, ground penetrating radar, and other technologies like that that had been used in research in agriculture for a long time, but never actually really deployed significantly commercially. And so I kind of joked around like, hey guys, we can, uh, instead of you know using satellite data, why don't we uh, focus on these satellites that go over every field in America several times a year? They're called tractors. Why don't we find some sensors we can put on, on tractors that will actually get the job done for us uh, accurately enough? So that kind of led us down this pathway of of focusing on what's called proximal sensing together with sparse soil sampling to, to make these maps. I love that you're combining a lot of different approaches and the fact that you've surpassed more than a million acres mapped shows that other people feel the same way as I do, but what do you see the future being? What's 2024 going to bring? Yeah, for us, we're really just focused on on growth, to be honest with you. We've got, you know, three core great products that we're continuing to develop on, but we're focused on them, which is till mapper for compaction measurement, nutrient mapper for, for traditional fertility measurements, and then and then C mapper for carbon. And so we in our whole history, we've now gotten to that million acres and we're really proud of it. But we're actually we're slated to to do two million acres in 2024 alone. So just trying to keep up with that kind of growth and make sure, make sure we don't drop any balls. Yeah, and Lars, as you look at kind of that future target, 1 million acres last year, 2 million acres this year, what's that big number, that big goal that you guys are working toward in the very near very near future? Yeah, I mean, really, our the, the real big long-term goal is we've got this vision of when someone needs to know something about soil information, whether it's a farmer, an agronomist, a carbon program, uh, and ultimately, even we're, we're interested in expanding into other industries like construction. There's a lot of industries that you know, need soil measurements in order to do their job. We really want that to almost be a virtual task. So much like you pull up Google Maps, uh, instead of actually having to go visit an area to get an overview and be able to make some decisions, we want people to pull up Earth Optics like they pull up Google Maps and have access to all the relevant, current, and accurate soil information they need to, to make their business decision, make an agronomic decision, or, or quantify a carbon program. So that's, that's our long-term future where, you know, we're not there yet, but really that's as we add on more and more acres, our system gets smarter and smarter, uh, and our ability to, to map out soil attributes gets, gets better with, with less money. So we're, we're trying to kind of approach that, that future with each step of the way. As you apply these you know, sensors to tractors, like you said, that go across the field, is there ever a place in the future to where these sensors come standard with the purchase of a new tractor? Oh, yeah, we, we really think so. We've been working, one of our investors is Case New Holland. We've been working with them for, for nearly four years, but we're also working with Bromark and CHS on their service tractors. And so we're early days in the whole tractor mining side. But yeah, much like your car comes equipped with a million sensors and tractors already do have a, you know, are already loaded with sensors today. We think soil measurement will just be a standard standard data set that, that tractors are expected to perform and integrate with all your other you know, farming intelligence tools. 
Fantastic, Lars. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but we appreciate you joining us and sharing the insight and the pathway ahead for Earth Optics. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to learn things out of Tech Tuesday. I appreciate getting those interview partners lined up. Delaney, excited to get to the next episode and see what other headlines we encounter this week. But listeners, for today, I think it's time to let them go. Let's let them go.